Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. People go to great lengths to protect what is important to them. That could be anything. It could be our families. It could be our online privacy. It could be a new car. It could be an endangered species. It could be a stamp collection. The question is not what it is, but how important that thing is. And when it's important to us, we will go to great lengths to guard it, to protect it. When I was young, my parents put my brothers and I in piano lessons, and once a week they would drop us off of Mrs. McDonald's house for our lesson. And while one of us was sitting at the keyboard receiving our instruction, the others were relegated to a back room in this house to wait for our turn. And as I remember it, it was very uncomfortable. Because Mrs. McDonald's house was pristine. It was perfect. And she had rules for keeping it that way. No feet on the furniture, which if I remember correctly, had plastic over it anyway. No eating, no moving, no touching, no coughing, no looking, no whatever. No doing anything. Sit there and stare at the wall. They were intense rules. Her home was important to her, and Mrs. McDonald had rules in place to protect it from enemies like us. To guard it from damage and to preserve it for the future. Now, to a child, a lot of those rules, they seemed harsh, and they seemed arbitrary, and they seemed unnecessary, and honestly, they seemed kind of silly. But I have no doubt that if Mrs. McDonald is still alive today, she is living in a stain-free home. (laughs) No doubt in my mind, because she put rules in place to protect what's important to her. And we all do that. Something's important to us. We put rules in place to guard that thing. And God does the exact same. God protects what is important to him. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we come to the third of six stops in our study of the biblical covenants. A quick recap before we get to that specific covenant. God created a perfect world in which he desired to dwell with humanity perfectly and eternally, enjoying that blessed fellowship. But as we know, humanity rebelled, wrecking everything and plunging creation into estrangement from our creator. And amazingly, as we continue to read through scripture, God didn't abandon the project at that moment like some of us would have. Wash your hands of it. It's a mess. He didn't do that. Instead, he began planning its restoration, not abandoning his desire to live in paradise with his people. And this plan of restoration, as we have seen, is a plan that can be traced through the biblical covenants. Oaths that God has obligated himself to by his infallible word. We call them, in order, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which we will be looking at this morning, and then, Lord willing, in the weeks to come, the priestly covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. 
Each one expresses a unique facet of God's revealed intentions for rebuilding what was lost. And each one provides a unique contribution for our anticipation of that day. Now, each week, as most of you know, we've been looking at one covenant and asking three questions of each. What is it? Where does it fit? And why does it matter? Where is it? What is it, rather? What are its contents? When, when we swear an oath, what's in there? What are the obligations in that oath? And maybe more importantly, when the original recipients received it or heard it, what did they hear? What did they understand? That's what is it. Secondly, where does it fit? How does it relate to the other covenants and the whole biblical storyline and this restoration project that God has underway? And finally, why does it matter to us? What difference should this make to us living in 2023, even tomorrow morning, as we get up to go to school, to go to work? How should this covenant change our thinking or redirect our thinking toward God and his ways and his plans and his purposes and his glory? Why does it matter? Now, we're going to take those three questions this morning and apply them, as I said, to the Mosaic Covenant, which is found starting in Exodus chapter 19. And so if you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to turn there now to Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and then chapter 19. And the first question, as I said, is what is it? What is the Mosaic Covenant? And since as we come to Exodus 19 and following, we are kind of parachuting down into a passage, we need to start with its context. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. So where are we in the biblical storyline? Well, some of you may know that Exodus begins by describing the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now a significant population at this point. They are enslaved in Egypt, and they are crying out to God for help. Deliver us, remember us, our God. The oppression is too tense. There's too much for us to bear. Deliver us. As we go through the book of Exodus, especially the first number of chapters, we know that God responds, doesn't he? He responds by raising up a leader in Moses. He then responds by, we could say, miraculously and theatrically delivering them from bondage. Think of the plagues and the parting of the sea. It's, it's dramatic, isn't it? But God does that for them. And then he starts leading them through this barren wasteland toward the land he promised them. And along the way, he provides for them and he protects them and he fights for them all the way along, bringing them toward that target destination. And what do these people do in response all the way along? They bow down and say, Lord, you are amazing. We'll do anything you want. No, they don't, do they? In fact, as we read through those chapters, what do we find? But they resist him. They doubt him. They disobey him. They grumble, grumble, grumble at him. And they quarrel with one another. It's it's accounts like this, and there are many of them, that make me very glad that I'm not God. And you all are glad for that, too. I know that. But it makes me glad that I'm not God because I read accounts like this, and I say, I would have wiped them out. I would have turned away from God's people at this point. These ingrates, they are so annoying. If I saw the parting of the Red Sea, I would never doubt again, I say to myself, right? And then the Holy Spirit taps me on my shoulder. And he says, you're just as annoying. (laughs) My wife says, amen, Holy Spirit. (laughs) They sound a lot alike sometimes, the Holy Spirit and my wife. You ever notice that? Yeah. 
makes me realize and remember that I'm just as annoyingly ungrateful at times as Israel. Grumbling and disobeying and doubting in the face of obvious provision and protection that he lavishes upon me. It's never good enough, though, when I grumble and I doubt. Just remember, as I read through this text, the early chapters of Exodus, and I reflect on my life and God's goodness, I just am reminded of how patient God is, how faithful he is. Because we remember here with Israel, we remember that, that God has sworn an oath to them that they would be a population in a specific location. So no matter how much they grumble, he's going to do it. Not because they deserved it, not because they have earned it, but because he said it's going to be so. It's the same with us. We remember he is faithful, faithful, faithful to what he said he will do, not because I contribute anything. In fact, it's the exact opposite, but because he's good to his word. Now, finally, we come to Exodus chapter 19. And God's people arrive at the foot of a mountain called Sinai. And God gathers his ragtag people around its foot. And in the first verses of chapter 19, he explains the purpose for the covenant that he's about to cut with them. So look with me at the first six verses of chapter 19. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, the one I'm about to cut, in other words, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So by this covenant that God is about to cut, he's telling them, I'm about to give you a covenant, and by this covenant, you will be my own possession among all the peoples. You, Israel, insignificant, really, you will be uniquely exalted and useful to me by this covenant. Also, by this covenant, you will be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? But they represent humanity before a holy God, right? And you're going to be a kingdom of priests, representing one another before me, your king, but also representing the nations before me. I want to be their king as well. You're going to represent, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. This covenant also will set you apart as a holy nation, morally pure and dedicated to the king's service. That's what this covenant is going to do. Summarily, the purpose of this covenant is the setting apart of Israel unto God, making and keeping them peculiar, weird, different among all the other nations so that they can do what they are called to do. Even today, we see this among all the nations of the world. Every nation has their own peculiarities, don't we? our own laws, our own governments, our own languages, our own people, our own customs. There's things that set us apart as different, and that's what God is doing here with this population. He has brought them out of Egypt, and now he's going to hem them in from all other nations and keep them distinct so that he can use them in unique ways. 
Look back to the text of verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now here we catch a glimpse of the nature of the covenant to come because it's different than the two previous and the three that are in the weeks ahead. The Mosaic Covenant is unique among the six biblical covenants because it is the only bilateral covenant. It's the only covenant in which both parties enter in knowingly. You'll remember back with the Noahic and the Abrahamic, Noah and Abraham, they weren't really involved. They were passive, weren't they? In fact, Abraham was asleep the whole time, and God himself swore this oath. He said, by myself, I will bring these things to pass. But here, we see right off the bat that Israel is saying, we're in. This is us. We want to enter this with you. They are not passive, and they are wide awake, and they are shouting, we will do it all. We want to be your possession, God. We want to be unique and priestly, holy and set apart for you. We are in. We are all in, they are saying. In many ways, this section is kind of the, the handshake before signing the mortgage. You know, it's not official yet, but they've declared their intentions. We are in. We want this. And what comes next will be the signing of the covenant in the next number of chapters. But here we see the intention. We've seen now the purpose. We've seen the nature of the covenant. And with this said, them declaring their intentions, now we start to see that they prepare. It's the preparation now for the covenant. The rest of chapter 19, it really records God's instructions to the people to get themselves ready. They just said, we want it. So God says, okay, now it's time to prepare. Look at verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate. That means set them apart. Consecrate, purify, consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments. And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day... The Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Can you imagine what that was like? I have no idea, to be honest. But the Lord himself descends on this mountain in such a way that they see it. And they see what's happening. He promises that that's going to happen. But they need to cleanse themselves. They need to purify the camp. They need to get themselves ready. And if we would read through this whole chapter, I don't know if we could miss the feeling of significance of what's about to happen, just based on the preparation. I think of important days in your life. Maybe you wake up the morning of your wedding or your graduation or your baptism. There's something different about that day, right? You prepare differently. You dress in a certain way. You might shave. You might wink at yourself in the mirror a little different. You know, there's something different about that day because what's about to happen is significant. Well, so much so here. God says, I'm about to cut a covenant. Serious business. So you need to get ready. The God of the heavens was about to descend and speak. Down to verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes, a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. I mean, this is serious business, isn't it? And with all that awesome stage set in what follows, God details the contents of the covenant. They're prepared now. They've said we want in. They've prepared themselves. Now here come the contents of the covenant, the conditions or the expectations and the requirements. And again, unlike the two we've looked at already, the Noahic and the Abrahamic, remember Noah's covenant? No more flood on the earth. Signed God. Pretty simple, right? Uh, Abrahamic covenant. There's going to be a people, a land, and a global blessing. Signed God. Unlike those, this Mosaic Covenant is exhaustive. It is quite detailed. In fact, it runs from chapter 20 all the way through to chapter 24, the totality of which is called the Book of the Covenant. It's the terms encapsulated in this writing, the meat of the contract, the not-so-fine print to which both parties are about to bind themselves. And I'll speak for myself here. Unlike me, who oftentimes gets the alert, do you want to read the the terms and click accept without scrolling through them? That's me. Unlike me, Israel is going to read them all. And they're going to understand them all. Because God is going to make sure, as we'll see. Now the first part, as we come to chapter 20, the first part of the book of the covenant is well known. In fact, it might be the most well-known covenant there is, even to unbelievers. Because the book of the covenant opens with what's called the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, the Ten Words of God. And they kind of form, the Ten Commandments, they function as a tone-setting summary. They set the tone for the whole Book of the Covenant. Here's the ethos. This is what it's about. This is the foundation of this covenant. And I know that we are probably all aware of the Ten Commandments, but I think it's helpful sometimes to read them and hear them in total. So let's read them together, starting in verse 1 of chapter 20 through to verse 17. Follow along with me. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I The Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. 
You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And then notice the response in verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. And with that prelude to the book of the covenant out of the way, Moses then approaches the cloud and receives more details, more instruction. In fact, if we would read through chapters 21, 22, and 23, we would see that there's instructions here on how to deal with slaves and clothing, accidental injuries and homicides, miscarriages and assaults, property rights and sexual ethics, economic disparity and legal proceedings, Sabbath-keeping and feast-observing. I told you, it's exhaustive. It is detailed. But expectations are being laid out and consequences described in this book of the covenant. The terms are being set. And then finally, when we come to chapter 24, we come to the ratification of the covenant. We want it. Get ready. Here it is. Here's the details. Here's the contract. And here comes Israel and God to both sign. Look at verse 3 of chapter 24. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, that which we just reviewed, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Let me ask the question here. Did the people of Israel understand the terms of the covenant? Did they comprehend the fine print? I mean, how many times did Moses go up and down the mountain, up and down, relaying messages back and forth between the people and God? And how many times did he rehearse the expectations? Here's what God says, and then he writes them down, and then he reads it to them again. How many times does he have to do that? And then how many times did Israel, all the people, it says, very clearly say, we're in. We'll obey. We'll keep it because we want it all. How many times did they do that? And then this blood sprinkled here, it symbolizes that the legal transaction being finalized, being sealed, 
between God, represented by the altar in verse 6, and between the people, represented by the 12 pillars in verse 4. The whole gang's here, everyone's here, and the blood comes forth and signs it. It's an oath that is sworn, sealed, delivered, done, deal, by the time we get to chapter 24, verse 8. Now, let's not lose sight of the purpose of this covenant in the sea of its content, because there's a lot of content here. So a lot of rules, a lot of obligations, a lot of ordinances, a lot of details. But what's the purpose? That brings us back to that first question. What is, in essence, what is the Mosaic Covenant? Here's my best way to summarize it. The Mosaic Covenant is an oath sworn by both God and Israel, full of detailed instructions meant to set and keep Israel apart as a holy, God-serving, and God-displaying people. They were God's nation. He was their king. And this covenant, which they willingly entered, was intended to keep it that way. In fact, they're still a nation today, aren't they? Because of this here. They are distinct because of this law, whether they kept it properly or not. Whether they kept it perfectly or not, they are unique and different. How many nations around them are saying, those food laws, those clothing laws, the way you treat humanity, all of these things, you're weird, you're, you're peculiar, Israel. And God says, that's right. They are different. They are set apart for me. Now we need to move quickly into that second question of its fitting. Where does the Mosaic Covenant fit into the whole scheme? How does it relate to the other covenants? Well, now remember, God is working to rebuild a sin-broken world. That is his goal. And so he lays a foundation with the Noahic covenant, you'll remember. It is not going anywhere. Never again will I destroy this stage on which I am going to perform this drama. The foundation is laid. And then on top of it, he builds the Abrahamic covenant, a population living at a specific location through whom he will send global benediction, blessing through this nation. But between the Abrahamic and the Mosaic Covenant, there's a question that should be raised. This population through which blessing is going to flow, what happens if they rebel against God? What happens if not only do they rebel, but they really dig in and rebel? They get to work. What happens? We've already seen that sin is still pervasive through the world at this point. What happens if they become corrupted? What happens if this population becomes in their corruption, indistinguishable from every other nation. It just mixes in and over the centuries disappears. What happens then? From where then is this global blessing going to come that we so desperately need when we look around this world? Where is it going to come from if this nation is no longer? And how then will he get this population to inherit this location if they're no longer a distinct nation? See, there's a lot at stake. And God takes care of that in the Mosaic Covenant. A covenant of preservation. That's what this is. He covers them. He says, you are going to be unique. You are going to stay distinct. He's going to make sure that they remain a distinct people. A people belonging to him. A people representing him. A people understanding holiness, albeit imperfectly, we see later on, right? But still, this is the expression. God says, you will be my people. I will be your God. You must be holy. Why? Because I am holy. Here's the law that will help you do that. And yes, they fail. But the law still hemmed them in 
Through this law, they will be a people that illustrate helplessness through that. That they can't pursue holiness by themselves. They, they can't reach that standard that God himself sets before them. He says, you want to be holy? There it is. There's the oath. And they say, we'll do it. And they, I mean, it's generous to say that they try. Sometimes they try. Other times they don't. But they illustrate the helplessness we have in the face of sin. This is going to be a people who God can use to bring about that much-needed global blessing. A blessing that ultimately culminates in the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've talked about in previous weeks. I should quickly add that because this is the only bilateral covenant, because humanity, Israel, enters into this covenant with God, we know it's not going to be as sure as the unilateral covenants, right? And time bears that out. They're not going to be able to keep this. And so in addition to it being a, a, a bilateral covenant, it is also the only temporary covenant of the six. Because as we read through this covenant and then we go through Israel's history, they don't keep it. In fact, oftentimes God will refer to them as covenant breakers, as committing adultery against him, their husband. They've cheated on him. They've broken the oath. They've broken the thing that they here entered. And, and really the biblical storyline, as you read through there's this ache for a better covenant. Another unilateral covenant about holiness that, that God will keep on our behalf because clearly we cannot do it. And so not only is the Mosaic Covenant the only bilateral covenant, but it's also the only temporary one. It's made to expire. And we'll get there in a number of weeks when we come to the New Covenant. The New Covenant is that eternal covenant that God unilaterally entering in for us that deals with holiness. But for now, we're stuck with a nation saying, we will, and you chuckled rightly because they certainly will not. This restoration project is important to God. Blessing the world is important to God. Saving sinners is important to God. Dwelling with humanity eternally and perfectly is important to God. And just like we do, God protects what's important to him. And so in the Mosaic Covenant, God puts detailed rules in place to make sure that happens. And let's face it, some of those rules will be sitting here today, and I'm sure they were in that day as well, saying, those are too harsh. Those rules don't make sense. They're arbitrary. They're unnecessary. And honestly, some of them are just downright silly, some of those rules. But there's no doubt that in the end, because of this covenant of preservation, God will enjoy a new creation free from the stains of sin because he's put rules in place to protect what's important to him. And that's how the Mosaic Covenant fits. Now finally, why does it matter? Why does the Mosaic Covenant matter to us? Now, it's large. We're familiar with it. Even as we reviewed it here this morning, I'm sure that there are several things that even come to your mind. The Holy Spirit is putting on your mind. It reminds me of this. It reminds me of that. But I want to share with you two that were on my heart and mind this week. Maybe they'll overlap with the ones you have. Maybe they will supplement the ones you have. But I want to put two before us. Things that we should think about as we leave our review of this covenant. The first one is important, but the second one is more so. The first one is this. The Mosaic Covenant, it reminds us that we are not Israel. We are not Israel. The Mosaic Covenant forces us to acknowledge the difference between Israel and the church. And many people want to combine those and confuse those things. They cannot be as we come to these covenants. It cannot be. Brothers and sisters, we did not enter into this bilateral covenant. In fact, we weren't even offered this covenant. 
We did not enter into it. It was offered to a particular population en route to a particular location. It was meant to set Israel apart from the surrounding nations and preserve them as the people that would bring that promised blessing. We are not subjected to the terms of that covenant any more than you are subjected to the terms of my phone contract. I signed it. I'm up on that. Israel went in with the blood. They are up on this covenant, not us. We are not Israel. And that becomes increasingly important as we go through the biblical storyline, especially to the New Testament. If we confuse those two things, we will eventually be in quite a bit of trouble. We need to keep those distinct. And this is an opportunity for it to put right before our eyes. The church and Israel are not the same thing. Yes, there's overlap. Yes, we share characteristics, but they are distinct. Now, let me quickly add that there are parts of the Mosaic Covenant that we hear and we say, but those sound good. We should do those things, right? We probably shouldn't murder. We probably should honor our father and mother. We probably shouldn't bow down to idols. And that's true, but not because the Ten Commandments say so. Because they are said elsewhere in Scripture. It shouldn't surprise us that the Decalogue or the Book of the Covenant coming out of God would carry God-like characteristics that are found elsewhere in the Bible also. And yes, so we should carry on those things, but not because the Ten Commandments say so. We are not under the law, brothers and sisters. And some people will say, well, there's different parts of the law. There's the civil part, which has to do with Israel's nationhood. And then there's the ceremonial, which has to do with the offerings and feasts. So those two, those have nothing to do with us, right? But then there's the moral law. And that's still active for us today. And I want to say that that sounds great, carrying forward these moral obligations. It does sound good, except for the fact that the Bible never divides the the law up in that way, ever. In fact, when the Bible talks about the law, the Mosaic Covenant, it always refers to it as a single unit, the law. James comes along and says, you break one, you broke the whole thing. Why? Because it is a package deal. It is the whole thing. It is a package. It's a unit. It was given to a particular population to preserve them, a covenant given to them, and that's not us. We are not Israel. Now, I said that the next one is more important. That's something that we should just be aware of as we come to Scripture. Notice the distinction between those two groups. But just because this covenant wasn't given to us and we did not swear it and enter into it does not mean that it has nothing to teach us. (laughs) It has a lot to teach us, in fact. We know from the New Testament, Paul's pen, that all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, reproving, training, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God may be adequate for every good work, equipped for every good work. Which means that without the covenant of Moses, we are deficient to becoming what God wants us to be. So there's clearly things here that apply to us and we want to take. And here's one of them. This is the other suggestion I have for us. The first is that we are not Israel. Here's the second. It's very basic but it's very important. In fact, it might be one of the most important truths that we can say as a church family. God is awesome. And I don't mean that in the flippant way we used it in the 90s. Awesome. That's not what I mean. I mean in the truest sense of that word and maybe the only one that this can actually apply to. God is truly awesome. We just go back to chapter 19 for a second here. So it came about on the third day when it was morning. There, there were thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. So that all the people, I'm sure there were brave people there. I'm sure that there were warriors there. They, they just walked through the desert. They were hardened people. And yet at the same time, they stood there and trembled in their sandals. 
And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they're inching toward the mountain, and they stood at the foot of the mountain, knees knocking together. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Our Lord is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. There is noth- if there is nothing else that this oath communicates, and there is much, but if there is nothing else that this oath communicates, it's that God is separate from his creation. That's what holiness means, set apart. He is not just one of us. He's not just one of the boys. He is outside. He is high and lifted up. He owns the earth, does with it what he wills, and commits himself to us in nothing but condescending grace. He doesn't have to come down to us sinners, and yet he does, and that does not tarnish his holiness one iota. He is still high and lifted up. He is the thunder and lightning, the shroud of divine fog, and the trembling earth. Our God is awesome, and we cannot forget that. The church in North America has long flirted with the incredible mistake of domesticating God like a lapdog. We say, come and go, lay down, and with a single word, he just obeys. That's kind of how the church as a whole treats our God. We pray, God jumps. What do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Like a genie, right? I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve you. That's how we sometimes treat him. We sin, he shrugs. Oh, no big deal, no big deal. Don't offend. We offend him, he apologizes. Oh, I stepped on your freedom there. I'm so sorry. Times change, so must he. You know, get with the times, God. You're so antiquated and old-fashioned. No wonder the church today is often indistinguishable from the world around us. We go out to the world and say, come to church, come meet our God, and they look in and they say, that just looks like a less cool version of what I already do. Why would I want that? God says, no, my church is to be completely different, set aside so when people draw near, they see something offensively different, but when their life is in shambles, they can look to something that's different and say, maybe they have an answer. That's why. But when we don't fear God, when we lose sight that he is awesome, we just become a social club that, again, is less cool than the world we're trying to minister to. It's no wonder there's so much flagrant sin within God's people at times. Not speaking about Oak Ridge, but in general. We've seen the moral failings all over the church. Some of it's expected. We're still fallen people. But how can there be such flagrant sin within God's people if we fear the awesomeness of our God? In fact, in chapter 20 of this text, Moses says exactly that. They're terrified. Speak to us. He says, speak to us yourself, Moses, because we can't hear God's holy voice. We're too, we're too sinful. Our heads are going to explode like Indiana Jones, right? Look at the Ark of the Covenant. We, we can't handle it. He's too holy. Speak to us yourself. Be the go-between Moses. And then look what Moses says in verse 20. Do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you. In order that the fear of him may remain with you. So that you may not sin. See, we sometimes think the fear of the Lord, that's terrible. Our God is no one to fear. Moses says the exact opposite. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. It purifies us. We would, not, we would not play in sin if we had a right view of the holiness and the awesomeness and the fearfulness of our God. He says it will stay with you. Never lose sight that he is holy and fearful. I once had the opportunity, was invited to preach at a small country church in southern Saskatchewan. 
And I walked into this church, and above the platform was this quote from Amos chapter 4. Prepare to meet thy God. Big letters above this platform. You get in, you get chills. This, this is intense, right? I mean, it's, it's a little on the nose, but how effective is that? I was reminded, I walk in to worship here, and for me, to, to handle God's word, should that not be on the forefront of my mind? Should that not be on the tip of my tongue? I am preparing to meet with my God who is holy, 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 and I am nothing of the sort. How do I prepare for that? How do they prepare to meet their God? Brothers and sisters, we need to recapture awe of the Almighty. You know, it's true, God is love, and he has come near us in Christ. Praise God for that. And we do every single week. We did at the table today, we did in our songs, and we will do so forevermore until he returns for us. Praise God that he has come near. Praise him that he is gracious and patient. But he is also transcendent. He is also fearful. And it's this balance that we want to be careful to pursue and protect and project. I once heard an illustration of this balance this way. It's like if you go to Niagara Falls, and let's assume that the platform that you can see the falls is a little closer, dangerously close to the water. And you get close, as close as you're willing to go, and you see just gallons of power of this water just gushing over the side. And there's something about that that makes you recoil. Right? You're just like, oh, that is so much power. I, I was so small compared to that. At the same time, there's something about it that makes you want to touch it. Maybe that's just me. And there's this tug of war inside of you. I want to recoil from the power, but it also draws me in at the same time. That's how we need to see God. There's something about him that he is so other that it makes us recoil as God's people and say, I am not worthy. Woe is me. I am a broken people, and I come from a broken people. At the same time, I cannot be helped but be drawn to you, your power and your beauty. And it's that balance that we must find, not just as individuals, but as a church family. And let's face it, in our day and age, we err on the one side and not the other. We don't err on the side of recoiling from our God. We err on the side of comfort with him, of just casual relationship with him. And praise God that he has drawn near, but he is still holy, holy, holy. We need to find that balance. God is awesome. So I want to encourage us that when we come into this place even, and this is just a building. It's a gift from the Lord, but it's just a building. But at the same time, what happens in this building is special. It is special. And so when we come into this place, when we prepare to gather with God's people to worship, I encourage us to remember that we must humble ourselves before God Almighty that we may prepare to meet with our God, the God who laid the foundation, who called a population to a location promising global benediction and then supplied their much-needed preservation so that it would happen, because it's important to him. The God who sent his son to die for us, that by believing in him we shall not perish like we deserve, but have an undeserved eternity in his awesome presence. It's a beautiful thing. See, the gospel salvation, eternal life through faith in Christ. It only sparkles brighter when we understand the holiness of the God we've offended. When we understand his awesomeness, when we understand just how far we fall short, the grace of God in the gospel just is elevated, and we can celebrate it all the more. May the church today recapture a sense of the awesomeness of God, an awesomeness only somewhat captured and communicated in the Mosaic Covenant, a covenant of gracious 
preservation. Let's approach the throne of grace of our awesome God right now together. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.